But Lord, thank you so much for this evening that we're able to gather, and we pray, uh, just pray that you would uh, take control of this evening, Lord, open our minds and our hearts, and just thank you for Dr. Delaire being with us today, Lord, and may we all learn from you through her tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Shalom. Shalom. I think it would be good for us to just uh, regroup and uh, just list the things that we've looked at so far and things we've emphasized. And one of them was, well, anybody remember what we talked about the past uh, five, six weeks? Crossing the Jordan. Crossing the Jordan? What about it? What did we say? I heard that uh, it was a real step of faith when they stepped into that Jordan. Yeah, because it was... Uh, the, the water was still running and it was fast. It was at the time of the year when the Jordan is the fullest, flows the fastest. And uh, so for them to just... Uh, for the priest to step in, it stopped further up at that down, several miles up the road. Okay, so they walked on dry ground, and we talked a little bit about the parallels between the Jordan, the crossing of the Sea of Reeds, and the crossing of the Jordan, that it uses the exact same language, dry ground, dry ground. Uh, you know, they stepped in, stepped in, uh, a number of things. Uh, we also talked about intertextuality, especially at the beginning. Anybody remember what that was about? That you find almost verbatim passages in different books. Yeah, yeah, a lot of connections. And he started by looking at the connections between the book of Joshua and Genesis, and the book of Joshua and Exodus, and the book of Numbers, and the book of Deuteronomy. Not as much the book of Leviticus, although there are some things in the book of Leviticus. Um, that also are connected to uh, the book of Joshua. But, uh, yeah, the book of Joshua is pivotal. It's a key between, you know, the pre-sedentary uh, life and the, the change, complete change in lifestyle as they could uh, plant seeds and build houses, that type of thing. They surely didn't do in the desert and we're not at home in Egypt. We talked about who the, Can the Canaanites yeah. were. Yeah, so who were the Canaanites? Were they as utterly wicked as what we have sometimes made them to be or heard that they were? There are really very few scriptures that talk about how utterly wicked they were. Uh, we talked about the extra-biblical literature Outside of the Bible, we have texts in written in Akkadian, in cuneiform, uh, that are that tell us about their social life and their family life and their, you know, their ethics and uh, systems of adoption and how they treated the foreigners in their midst and that type of thing. So they weren't uh, all that wicked. The emphasis, really, in driving them out in in um, uh, dispossessing them from their land is really much more focused on the God of Israel that's the home that he has chosen for his people and so therefore it's more against the gods of the Canaanites uh, 
rather than against all Canaanites. It's really much more of a theological uh, message to them to drive them out, not just for genocide. The book of Joshua is not about genocide. It's not about ethnic cleansing, as some people think it, it is. It is much more about God has chosen that place and God will bring his people in that place. Talked a little bit about uh, the exaggerated language, but we're going to look at, uh, at that tonight a little bit more. Uh, what I'd like to do is uh, let's go to Joshua chapter 1. We're going to flip a little bit and uh, comment, and I'll start adding some things. In Joshua chapter 1, we know we have God speaking to Joshua, saying, uh, you know, Chazak ve'emat. Be strong and courageous, etc. And then uh, Joshua speaks to the the leaders, uh, especially the eastern tribes, and then the eastern tribes respond. So we have uh, three uh, main speeches in chapter one. In chapter two, we have Rahab. We talked about her faith, her profession of faith. How did she know all these historical events in the life of Abraham, in the life of uh, Israel? And uh, from, you know, decades earlier, uh, she was obviously a good listener. She was a good uh, businesswoman, a good negotiator. Uh, she, she thinks fast on her feet. And we talked a little bit about the messianic sign of the scarlet thread in the window. You know, because the, the term that is used, Chutshani, uh, is used only uh, together as an expression in the Song of Songs where it talks about the love of uh, you know, the man and, and, and the woman and, and uh, a real image also of the love between God and his people and so the, the scarlet thread uh, has been interpreted as a messianic sign also the shedding of blood and that type of thing uh, in chapters 3 and 4 is the crossing of the Jordan, and we looked at how the events are not listed sequentially, because there's overlap, there's backtracking, there's, you know, you're not too sure how things uh, exactly happen. So we talked a little bit about that. In chapter 5, once they made it across, there are three main things that happen. The Passover, the circumcision, and uh, the theophany. Those are the three main things of this chapter. Now, why is it important that we have those three things as soon as they come into the land? It's really to establish themselves as uh, covenant people with God. The sign of the covenant in the, the circumcision, uh, the shedding of blood, the Passover celebration, remembering what God has done. And they had been told, as soon as you get into the land, make sure you celebrate the Passover and that you are to do it year after year, but uh, in the land you will celebrate it. And then uh, the theophany that is very similar to the burning bush because it has the same language at the end of chapter 5 where we have uh, the commander of the Lord's army uh, who says to Joshua, remove your sandals because you're standing on holy ground, which is exactly the same thing that was told to Moses in Exodus chapter 3 uh, at the burning bush. Also, the reaction of Joshua is to fall on his faith, 
on his face, not on his fate, and uh, all on his face, and also a similar type of reaction from uh, Moses in Exodus. And then we get to chapter 6. Chapter 6 is the, the account of uh, Jericho. Good evening. And so we're just flipping through Joshua right now and reviewing some things. So we're, we're looking at uh, Joshua chapter 6. And so we're pretty familiar with the story of uh, uh, Jericho when the walls came down and all this. But there's, there's some language here that begins to appear. And actually this term, harem, uh, begins to appear here. And the term harem is usually a term that you find in conquest, in warfare, in, uh, and it's not a, a, a term, it's sometimes translated the devoted things, things devoted to destruction, or it's or sometimes identified as things that are put under the ban. What does that mean? What is a banned substance? Something we shouldn't touch, correct? Most of the time. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, is it completely banned? Is there, uh, there, are there aspects? Or should things that are banned be dis completely destroyed or set aside or buried? Or, you know, how are they to be treated? So, so what happens in the, in the English translations, there are many translations for this word. And sometimes destroy, but because the term doesn't always mean to destroy, it means to devote these things to God. The, the, the spoil of war that is called harem is devoted to God. It's God decides what will be done with those things. God will decide if those things should be destroyed or if those things should be kept and placed in the treasury of the Lord or if these things should be used by Israel uh, as spoil of war that they actually need to continue living in the land. So it's, it's a term that has, uh, uh, you know, has been studied a lot, has had a lot of uh, people look at divine warfare in trying to understand this term. So this term doesn't only appear in the biblical text. The devoted things to God or to the gods, it also appears in extra-biblical literature. For example, in the Moabite stone, the, 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 the Mesha still, they call it, it's, it's a text that takes place during the uh, 8th or 7th century uh, where the Moabites are in conflict with the Israelites and uh, they talk about the conflict uh, between uh, uh, Moab and Israel. And uh, it's, it's military campaign language that you find also and terminology that you find in the Mesha Stone in the same way as you find military campaign language expressions uh, in the biblical text that may or may not represent reality. And so that's one thing that's a, that's a little tricky when you talk about military campaign reports. Does it tell us exactly what happens 
or what happened, or is it the language that you used to say, we won, we won it all, we killed them all, you know, but did they kill them all? And so in the Mesha stone, this is used, and it says that the spoil of war was to be a harem to Chemosh, who, is, who was the Moabite god. So this term, nobody knows where it first was used, because you look in other texts from ancient Near East, and the origin of the term, nobody can really pinpoint where it comes from. What people can say is that when it's used, it talks about military warfare, belongs in that context, and it's theological warfare. Now, we, when we read military campaigns in the biblical period or in the biblical text, we cannot screen it through our own understanding of military warfare today. Because there are a lot of things that take place in the Bible in warfare, uh, and all of these things are, are divinely orchestrated, if you want, or God is part of it. And so there's someone who put a whole list together. Well, uh, uh, chapter six. Let's let's get to that. Could you put the English transliteration for the Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's right. This is called Cherem. I'm used to teaching Hebrew, so <laughs> I forgot. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Cherem. So according to Hebrew, we read it that way. So Cherem. <laughs> All right. And so we start having this term here. We have uh, in Joshua chapter 6, at the beginning of the chapter, uh, it says that uh, one thing that's interesting at the beginning of chapter 6, verse 1 says, Now Jericho was tightly shut because of B'nai Israel. No one going out, no one coming in. Then Adonai said to Joshua, Look, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its kings and mighty warriors, now you are to march around the city, and then the, the instructions are given as to how they are to take the city. So they do. In verse 15, it says, Now on the seventh day, they, they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same way seven times. Only on that day did they march around the city seven times. Now did all the Israelites march around the city? No, there was really just a very small group, you know, and that marcher. First of all, all the Israelites wouldn't have been walking all around the city seven times around Jericho. Jericho was not a big place and, uh, during that time. So we have the instructions that are given to us uh, earlier as to who comes first, uh, the priests and those carrying the ark, and, uh, you know, the procession that takes place, the the, those who are blowing the shofar, and so they're not a very big group going around the city. The others are waiting for the instructions to march in front of them. Uh, so verse 15, again, now on the seventh day they rose early at dawn and marched around the city in the same way seven times. Only on that day did they march around the city seven times. And on the seventh time when the, the Kohanim, the priest, blew the shofar, the, the uh, ram's horn, Joshua ordered the people, Shout, for Adonai has given you the city, but the city will be under the ban of destruction. It and all that is in it belongs to Adonai. 
So that's the key when you think of military warfare in biblical times or in the Bible. It's about God. It's about divine warfare. It's about uh, God. Uh, the gods uh, are always involved. And this is not just a concept that you have in, in the Bible. You have uh, in Mesopotamia, at, uh, uh, you have in the Enuma Elish. Enuma Elish is a text that the Mesopotamian creation narrative. You have the Ea, who's one of the main gods, and battling against Tiamat and, and other gods or goddesses. And so, and the same thing at Ugarit. Ugarit is in Syria. Now, Mesopotamia is Iraq. And uh, Ugarit is uh, Syria on the coast of the Mediterranean. You have Baal is the main god of uh, Syria of the day of uh, that city and that whole area, actually, is a Canaanite god. And you have texts that are battles with Baal and Yam, who's sea, the, the god of the sea, and so you have, so, the, so military warfare is my god against your god, much more than my army against your army. So the way it's described in the biblical text always involves God. It's a God thing. And if you remember that right after Israel came out of, uh, of Egypt, uh, Exodus chapter 15, the song of the sea, uh, the, the song of Moses, is, is it starts with God is a warrior. That's the first place where we actually have mentioned Keep your finger here and flip back to Exodus chapter 15. And it's, I will sing unto the Lord for the Have your guitar. The Lord my God has sent my soul but uh, anyways, in verse uh, yeah, verse one, then Moses and Bnei Israel sang this song to Adonai. I will sing to Adonai, for he is highly exalted. The horse and its riders he has thrown into the sea. I mean, it's all Adonai who did it. Adonai is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God. I will glorify him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. Adonai is a warrior. Adonai is his name. So this is the first time that he's really identified as a warrior. And that remains uh, consistent as God being involved in the conquest, God being involved in any of the, the confrontations that Israel had with, uh, uh, with other groups. So if we're back in Joshua chapter 6, <coughs> In verse 17, it says, But the city will be under the ban, cherem, the ban of destruction, cherem. In other words, the city will be devoted to God. God determines what will be done to the city. He is the one who determines. If and all that is in it belong to Adonai. Only Rahab the harlot will live, she and all who are in her house, because... 
she hid the scouts that where that uh, we sent. <clears throat> but you just keep yourselves, keep yourselves from the things under the band. Don't touch the cheren. Mm -hmm. Don't touch the cheren. Otherwise, you would make yourselves cheren, a curse by taking of the things under the band. And so you would make the camp of Israel a curse and bring trouble on it. So the instructions in Jericho is don't touch what belongs to God. There are other places, it's clear, take the cheren. Put the cheren in the treasury. Bring the cheren with you. But here, regarding Jericho, it is clear, don't touch. These are the instructions. Verse 19, all the silver and gold and vessels of bronze and iron are holy to Adonai and must go into the treasure, treasury of Adonai. So this is determined. The, the precious things are preserved. But, what, but don't touch anything else of the spoil because then you become Karen. And when you look at several places, even in Leviticus, it talks about the cherem, that anything that is cherem, that touches cherem, that becomes cherem, needs to be put to death. And so we find out in the next chapter that we have some trouble in the case. All right? So here in chapter 6, it's pretty clear. The spoil belongs to God. The vessels of gold, silver are to be put in the treasury of the king, but don't touch anything else. And so let's keep reading, verse uh, 19, uh, verse 20. So when the shofarot blew, the ram's horn, the people shouted. When the people heard the sound of the shofar, the people shouted a loud shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, everyone straight ahead, and they captured the city. They utterly destroyed everything in the city. Now, this is cherem. So you could translate it, they cherem, everything in the city. They destroy everything. Remember last week when we looked at Deuteronomy? Let's uh, keep your finger here and go back to Deuteronomy. Chapter 7. you into the land you're entering to possess and drives out many nations before you. And we read several scriptures that talk about the Lord driving out, you driving out, and, and dispossessing, and all kinds of Hebrew terms that talk about uh, not necessarily annihilating. Okay? So drives out many nations before you, the Hittite, the Girgashites, the Amorite, the Canaanite, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous, and and mightier than you, and Adonai your God gives them over to you, and you strike them down, then you are to harem them. You are to devote them to God. Many translations will say utterly destroy them. Well, you are to harem them. You know, uh, if we keep reading, you are to make no covenant with them, and show no mercy to them. 
You are not to intermarry with them. You are not to give your daughter to his son or take his daughter for your son. Uh, for he will turn your son away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of Adonai will be kindled against you and he will swiftly destroy you. Instead, you are to deal with them like this. Tear down their altars, smash their pillars, cut down their Asherah poles, and, and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a holy people to Adonai your God. From all the people on the face of the earth, Adonai your God has chosen you to be his treasured possession. So somebody mentioned last week, sure, if, if you're supposed to utterly destroy them, then how can you intermarry and how can you make covenant with them? You can't. So if you think of, okay, you harem them, devote them to God. God will decide what needs to be done with them. It kind of gives the possibility that not every time it says utterly destroy, that it's a literal utterly destroy everything and everybody. Okay? Am I creating doubt about the authority of scriptures? Well, oh. if I do, I'll tell us. Uh, Chaim will straighten us all out. <laughs> 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 At some point. Does it make much difference? I mean, there's a metaphor in Deuteronomy 7. You've got the. That's the part of the one. Because other places where you just sit near a man with a ring, but here's the. Well, it's because. The infinitive with the. Uh, the infinitive the absolute, exactly, with the conjugated form. Yeah. Both the same root, Chetme, uh, Reshme. Yeah. So utterly. Uh, so when it's not that way every time. It's like having noticed it. That's right. So whenever it's translated utterly destroy or utterly, it's emphasized because of the infinite mm. so, so if it's not that the nature of what it's always just seems odd, like the one we're not exactly sure. So whatever this word is, we're going to really mean it here. It just seems a little. <laughs> what I'm saying is that we cannot assume that everywhere where this happens, it means to annihilate everybody. It, can't, it does not mean genocide. Now, if we read the whole passage, we see and you are to deal with them this way. Tear down all their religious stuff that could cause Israel to, to uh, get involved in syncretism. Are you saying that there are, is it fair to say there are times when it does mean that? Or is it, you're just trying to say this can't hold? I think about Samuel, for example, when Saul didn't say, you know, come and there and Okay, let's keep looking at passages okay. and then okay. let's determine can we always be sure that it means completely destroyed or completely annihilated? Yes, it can because in, in military warfare, usually there's death, there's destruction. But I think what I'm trying to do is challenge the idea that the book of Joshua is about genocide. And it uses harem a lot, but harem means several things. And it's a military term, uh, or it's a religious term in the context of military warfare. Okay, Because warfare was theological. It was about God much more than it was about just simply warfare. Now, if you think today, you know, they gather the troops together and say, oh, well, you know, let's, uh, whatever you do, devote it all to God. Yeah, right. You know, they're trying to get the chaplains to stop praying in the name of Jesus. I mean, there's anything religious trying to get it all of, of any military. So we don't think that way. We, it's just not part of our understanding of warfare. Now, when you look at some other cultures that actually, you know, 
conquer in the name of their God, they understand this concept a lot more than we do. But in the biblical text, is it literally kill them all? And that's what I'm looking at. And so, so here it says, driving them out, destroying their things, and harem them, utterly harem them, whatever uh, they were supposed to do with them. Now look at the end of that chapter in Deuteronomy chapter 7, and verses 25 and 26. It says, The carved images of their gods you are to burn with fire. You are not to covet the silver or gold upon them, or take it for yourself, or you could be snared by it, for it is an abomination to Adonai your God. You are not to bring an abomination into your house, for you, like it, will be a bad thing. You will become harem. You must utterly detest and utterly abhor those religious things, for it is set apart for destruction. It is, it is devoted to God. Okay, is it going to be totally destroyed? You know, sometimes we know more clearly and sometimes we don't know as clearly. But it's the term harem. You will become harem and those things will be harem. Okay, so those things will be devoted to God. You will be devoted to God, so the risk is that if God decides to, to treat you the way some spoil of war is treated, by destroying you, then, you know, make sure you follow the laws of Haran. You're not supposed to touch, don't touch. Because what happens if you touch, you're not supposed to. You become the very thing that is devoted to God that God may very well destroy, choose to destroy. And, and we can remember that uh, as we, well, uh, as we look at our next chapter. But uh, before we go there, let's look at um, verse, uh, chapter 13 of Deuteronomy. We have another passage that tells us a little bit about Haran. Haran. You know, Moses uses that term a lot in the book of Deuteronomy to say, you know, it's, it's a God thing. God determines. I, I understand that we're talking about semantic domain, you know, nuances of meaning. Um, but in this particular passage, because he's, there's a list, and, and he always compounding sort of these ideas um, of what they're to do in the process of conquering. Um, how are we to know whether the list in and of itself is instructing sort of a comprehensiveness of destruction versus um, just a, a nuance sort of an ideological idea of not being banned yourself. Um, okay, so are you talking about the list of things they are to destroy? Yeah, well, it, 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 in chapter 7? Well, the, in chapter 7. Yeah, because that's pretty clear what they are to destroy. Well, when I when it goes from utterly destroying a harem to uh, make no covenant with them, but to marry with all these sorts of different variations of ways of distancing yourself from them, uh -huh. um, I I wonder if how do we how do we know if in this particular context um, it's not complete annihilation? 
Well, it, first of all, logically, mm -hmm. we take what is said in the list. Mm -hmm. doesn't make sense that after you tell someone to completely annihilate and mm -hmm. destroy, that you tell them, well, don't marry them. Well, if they're not there, how can you intermarry? But then it's very specific what to destroy. Okay, okay so it, it, it uh, assumes that the people are still there. Because the destruction is really focused on any of the religious things that are worshipped by them that could be used to influence Israel uh, from being drawn away from their God. Could this possibly also be um, like each item, each kind of thing that they're supposed to do, be different domains of relationships? It could, but let's keep looking at the harem and let's keep looking. It's a good question. You almost have to destruct in order to construct when you deal with this term. Because if you can't just take one passage and say, here it says utterly destroyed. End of story, let's go home. You know, end the Bible study. And uh, no, you have to look here and look here and look here and look here and look here, and they don't all agree. So that's why translating this term sometimes is difficult, because you think, okay, utterly destroyed, but they're still there. You know, you're still talking about negotiations, and you're still talking about destroying something very specific. And uh, so let's look at other passages and see what else we find out about the harem. It's, it's not an easy topic to teach on because it's a concept that is difficult for us to grasp that especially we read the biblical text and think we process it through our Western grid instead of a grid of what did warfare mean to them. It's not the same as what it means to us. How did they speak of it? How did they, uh, you know, God was always part, uh, he's the one who's leading, he's the one who's orchestrating. It's a, and, but we don't think in those terms today. So we, we, you know, we want to take things literally when we, all, we have to learn to take a step back from that and, and then look at, okay, in the biblical text and outside of the biblical text and put the picture together much more based on their context rather than our context. Then things make, make more sense for the text. Either that or you'll be totally confused. <laughs> but uh, anyway, in chapter 13, and starting at verse 13, it says, Suppose you hear it said in one of your cities, which Adonai your God is giving you to dwell in, that worthless fellows have gone up from among you and enticed the inhabitants of their cities, saying, Let's go and serve other gods that you have not known. So again, we're talking warfare and we're talking theology. It's all in the same, all intertwined. Then you are to investigate, search out, and inquire thoroughly if indeed it is true in the matter certain that this abomination has been done in your midst. You will surely strike down the inhabitants of that city with the edge of the sword, utterly destroying it. And that is in it, and all that is in it, and its livestock with the sword. 
You are to gather all its plunders. Now remember, you're going to kill the all and all its plunders. Remember that little word, all, every, entirely. That's a key word called in Hebrew. It's a key word that is used in military campaign reports. That many times gives you a report that is not the reality on the ground. It's the way you you report uh, what you are to do. So, so the context is military warfare, but the context is also God in the military warfare. Verse 17, you are to gather all its plunder into the middle of the street. You are to burn with fire the city and all its plunder, all of it to Adonai your God. It will be ruined forever. It shall never be built, built again. Nothing from the harem should cling to your hand so that Adonai may turn from the fierceness of his anger and show you mercy and have compassion on you and multiply you just as he swore to your fathers. When you listen to the voice of Adonai your God, keeping all his commandments, it's mitzvot that I am commanding you today, doing what is right in the eyes of Adonai your God. So again, we hear, don't touch. It's devoted to God. God will determine what he wants done with it. And it's not always the same. Okay? Which is something that we read this and we think, did they burn every city with fire? Did they? Yeah. So we read the passage and it's as if it's universally, it should be universally uh, applied. But a lot of excavations, we have burnt layers in some of the excavations. Hatsor, for example, very clear of Hatsor. It says that the city was burned with fire. The, ex the archaeologists have found as they excavated, you can see the burnt layer because you can see what was below and then the burnt layer and then they build, they build on top all the time. So other places that have uh, burnt layers, very clearly you can see uh, you know, that the city was burnt. But that's not in every city. That's actually in few cities in comparison to all the cities of the land that were taken. Um, so, sorry. Um, and I may have missed something because I came in late, but in this particular passage, it sounded like you were saying to me, um, sounded to me like you were saying, that they weren't actually to destroy everything. They were just not to touch it and let the Lord do with it as he will. Uh -huh. um, and, but what I'm reading here, it sounds like he's saying they were to destroy it, and so I'm a little confused. Yes. <laughs> You're not the only one. <laughs> Let's keep looking at it, and, and that's, that's what I've been saying. Wherever this term appears, it's not always clear what they are to do with it because this really means that whatever is taken in the military campaign is to be devoted to God. Sometimes it's clear, sometimes it's not so clear. But the word doesn't mean condemn. It can mean, it means something is devoted to God. Sometimes it's destroyed, sometimes it's not destroyed, sometimes it's used by Israel to continue their journey. And, you know, if, if some of the, the harem is military equipment, for example, what well, it's a good thing for them. What if it's food that they need to continue? Because they, you know, the, the journey continued for them. But there are times it says, do not touch. And especially that 
it's very clear. Do not touch anything that has to do with their gods. So that is one thing that in the harem destroy that. And that's pretty clear throughout. Whenever. That means literally destroyed. This sometimes it's very clear. Yes. Deuteronomy 7, what we just looked at, that it's clear. Destroy the Asherah poles, destroy this, destroy that, destroy mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. and so, but sometimes we don't. Sometimes it says, "Oh, kill all the men, women, children," but then you know, next chapter, the women, children, and elderly are still there. And you think, "Okay, what happened?" So we'll get to that. You know, so, so it's how do we understand? How do we read scripture when you have terms like this that are key terms that are difficult? And it's a key term for the Book of Joshua because the Book of Joshua is. The conquest of the land. You know, we saw last week that it's not necessarily a quick military kill them all thing. We saw that God says, I will come and I will dispossess them and I will drive them out slowly, little by little. Well, you read the book of Joshua and it looks like every day they're, you know, excuse, pardon my French, but kicking butt. And I'm going to be more like propaganda, from the point of propaganda. Well, I wouldn't go with propaganda. I would go with its language that fits the military language of that period of that day of ancient Near Eastern warfare and biblical warfare, for one thing. It's not meant for propaganda. It's written this way because that's how you write uh, yeah, war details. Okay? So it's a good suggestion, but uh, when you look at, at... We can go come back to these questions at the end if I don't get uh, you know, shut down too early. And... Uh, you're asking for chesed. Uh, yes, can I get lots of chesed tonight? <laughs> okay, because there are so many passages we could look at. Now, let's go back to Joshua and see how does that work with Joshua. Where do we find Haran? Do we find Haran in Joshua? All over the map. And some places in concentrated uh, chapters, we have a lot of repetition of Haran. Now, there's someone who looked at, uh, made a list of, uh, of elements that are related to war in the Bible that have that show that warfare was theological and we have to read it that way. And so all for example, God, and most of these things appear in the book of Joshua and other books. So number one, God calls the people through the sound of the shofar. For military warfare. It's time to go to war, sound the shofar. Men are consecrated, and you find the shofar in Joshua 6. Men are consecrated to God for battle. Because if they're not, they may not make it through the war. They have to be consecrated to God, Joshua 3. Men are circumcised before the battle. Those who had not been circumcised in Joshua 5, and then we find that, and they also abstain from sexual intercourse. We have that in 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel. Weapons are consecrated to God before battle. We don't have that in Joshua, but we have that in 1 and 2 Samuel. 
Vows are made by the warriors. Yes, we will follow the Lord, you know. They respond to the call. We have that in Joshua chapter 1, Numbers 21, Judges 11, 1 Samuel 14. Then the army camp is ceremonially purified before the war, before going into battle. We have that in, in Joshua 5, Deuteronomy 23. Israel brings sacrifices to God before going into battle. After your heart, you have sin in your life, you better offer a sin offering and you better, you know, uh, make sure you're, you're right with God and give glory to God. It's all about Him. Warfare is about Him. God gives direction and or encourages the warriors with assurance of victory. Go, you're going to make it. I'm with you. Joshua 1, 6, 8, etc. Judges 20, 1 Samuel 7, 14, etc. God leads the army into battle. Joshua 5, Joshua 6, Joshua 8, Joshua 10, Judges 4, 5, Deuteronomy 20. And the Mesha inscription, the Moabite inscription that I mentioned earlier, that is extra-biblical literature, again the same thing, that God, Kamosh, gives the instruction for warfare. Little importance is placed on the quantity of ammunition because God is the one who brings the victory with Israel joining him in battle. He leads. So Israel, they're told, they're a little, you know, they're not the strongest. The, the people they're facing are stronger, mightier than they are. But they don't have chariots of iron while some of the people they're confronting or they're facing have chariots of iron. So again, God is with them. So very little importance about, you know, uh, their arms. God is the mighty warrior who miraculously brings victory and gives strength to Israel for the battle. Joshua 10, 23, Exodus 14, Deuteronomy 1, 1 Samuel 14. God is the warrior, the mighty warrior. God is the chief commander of the army. The Israelites are told to believe in God and not to fear their enemies. Actually, it's said that your enemies will fear you and their hearts will melt in fear. You know, not because Israel is big and loaded with our, with military, you know, with chariots and, and tanks and everything else. It's because the reputation of the God of Israel is scary. You know, and the, the people of Jericho, the closer the Israelites came, people of Jericho, their hearts melted in fear. Because their God, the Canaanite God, could not stop them. The Moabite God could not stop them. The Emonite gods could not stop them. The Amorite gods could not stop them. And what are we going to do when they get on our doorstep? You know, is our God, from what we've seen so far, our God ain't going to make it. The well-equipped enemies experience divine terror. Not just fear. It's divine terror. God, uh, and it says that God will bring terror on them. In Joshua 2, Joshua 5, Joshua 10, Exodus 23, Deuteronomy 7, Judges 7, 1 Samuel 14. The spoil of warfare is subject to God. It's what he wants to do with it. Joshua 6, 8, Deuteronomy 20, 1 Samuel, etc. Lots of passages where you have that here. And then the dismissal of the army is announced officially. 
that God, the campaign that God has initiated, has ended. Why? Because God gave the victory. So it's always speaking in terms of you go because God says go. God is with you. You win because you do it His way. You move when He says move. And what's interesting in Joshua chapter 6, if you look at uh, verses 1 and 2, now Jericho was tightly shut up because of Bnei Israel, no one going out, no one coming in. Then Adonai said to Joshua, look, I have given Jericho into your hands. So God says, okay, time to go. Go for it. This is how you're going to do it. Now what happens next chapter? You read the, the beginning of chapter 7. They won Jericho, hallelujah, glory be to God, you know. Chapter two, 7 starts with, but B'nai Israel unfaithfully violated the harem. That's a hard chapter to read. Achan, son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the banned things of the harem. Therefore he became harem. So Adonai's anger burned against Israel. Now Joshua doesn't know that yet. You know, he's, he will soon find out. And But verse 2 says, Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy the land. Now in the previous chapter, God said, Okay, time to go. Here, I don't see Joshua waiting for God to say, Okay, time to go. You know, it's Joshua. Sends men, they get going, they go in verse 3. When they return to Joshua, they reported to him, Ah, no sweat. Let not all the people go up, only you know, about two or 3,000 men need to go up and strike. Ah, we don't wear out. Uh, so don't wear out all the people there, but just a few people. So about 3,000 men from the people went up there, but they fled before the men of Ai. The men of Ai struck down about 36 of their men, and they chased them from outside of the gate as far as Shebalim, striking them down on the slope so the hearts of the people melted and became like water. The heart of who? Israel. Israel. Melted. Now, number one, there was sin in the camp. There was Herod in the camp. That was a problem. Because in Jericho, God said, don't touch. But Achan thought, oh, look at that. That's so pretty. Oh, I love that thing. You know. No one's going to know. That's right, exactly. <laughs> you know, and Joshua didn't know. But he also didn't pray. What if he had said, okay, Lord, you know, are we ready? Should we go? Would God have said, uh-uh, not yet? And so maybe 36 lives could have been spared. Okay, so there was no indication at the beginning of this chapter that there's really Joshua following the Lord in this case, as he had done for Jericho. Now the response of Joshua is very interesting. In verse 6, it says, Joshua then tore his clothes and fell to the ground on his face. Now in verse 6 of chapter 7, before the ark of Adonai until evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their head, which is a sign of mourning. Alas, Adonai Elohim, Joshua said, Why did you ever bring this people across the Jordan? Is it to deliver us in the hands of the Amorites to destroy us? Whoa, is that? 
If only we had been content and dwelled beyond the Jordan. Oh, my Lord, what can I say now that Israel has turned its back before its enemies? For when the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land hear of it, they will surely surround us and cut our names from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? And Adonai said to Joshua, get up. <laughs> Why are you falling on your face? Israel has sinned. If you had checked with me first, you know, you would have known. Yes, they have transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. Now they have even taken of the things, the harem. So they have also stolen and even deceived and even put them among their possessions. Which was a problem, you know, because first you take the harem, you become a harem, and then you keep it in your tent, so in the midst of the camp, and the responsibility also of the impact of what that, that does to the whole community, not just to his household. So here you have the, bad, the, the harem all over the place. So B'nai Israel cannot stand before their enemies. So they turn their necks before their enemies because they have they have become harem. I will not be with you anymore unless you destroy whatever is under is uh, harem among you. Arise, consecrate the people, and say, consecrate yourselves for tomorrow. For tomorrow, for thus says Adonai, the God of Israel. Something of harem is in the midst of you, Israel. You will not be able to stand up before your enemies until you remove that harem from among you. In the morning you will approach, and then he gives the whole instructions. And <coughs> so it's very clear that this thing that is God's, <laughs> that thing that is God, I got a five minute break. <laughs> Hi, David. <laughs> And so that thing that is harem is uh, that is God's, you know, all of a sudden has been taken. There's deceit, there's sin, there's hiding, there's, you know, it's God's stuff. It's not our stuff. Not, you know, the stuff that he has said specifically the son of Jericho don't touch. So it's a very uh, sad ending to the story because the family of Haran all end up being stoned, being killed. But that's what we find in Deuteronomy, that's what we find in Leviticus, that if there's Haran in the camp, that someone who brings Haran in the camp will be destroyed. And also possibly others would be destroyed. And this is what we find happening here. It's hard. It's really hard to read things like this. I don't like reading chapter 7. I wish I could just kind of <laughs> <laughs> chapter 7 out of the, the text. Uh, uh, but it's there, but I think it's important for us to see that our sin impacts other people. God means business when he said, don't do this. And so there are many victims of all kinds of, you know, sins, all kinds of things on the earth a lot of people are victims and die prematurely and because people do things they shouldn't be doing. Mm. You know, it's it's not very different. Here it's spoken in terms of the the stuff of war that has been taken belongs to God, doesn't belong to you, so don't touch. If you touch, there are consequences. Now look at chapter 8. Now they were defeated at I, so they're going to try that again, but in verse 1, 
says, Then Adonai said to Joshua, Do not be afraid or dismayed in all the people who are war with you. Arise, go up to Ai. Now is the time. Now you can't, because the Aaron has been removed from the, from the, uh, uh, the camp. Okay? So now you can go. So if Joshua had prayed, we don't know. Of course we can, you know. Maybe we wouldn't have chapter 7. You know, but we have it. And I think it's a, it's a, a lesson for us. So thinking about warfare, all of this. So let's keep going in the book of Joshua. Since I only have a few minutes left, I want to to look at not just the cheren as a term used in military warfare, but what else is language of warfare? In uh, chapter uh, nine, we have the Gibeonites uh, who manipulate and Joshua, <coughs> and end up making a covenant with them. So. The city of Gideon is, is being protected by Israel. We're not going to look at all that. Um, and then chapter 10, there's the southern campaign, meaning that the kings of the south, the kings of uh, uh, Jerusalem, Hebron, Yarmouth, Lachish, Eglon, they get together because Gibeon is a central place on the central hill uh, area. And it's a good-sized city for that time. And so uh, the kings of the south get together, Jerusalem and some cities south and southwest, and uh, they want to attack Gib- Gibeon. And so Gib- the Gibeonites said, say to Joshua, help, help, we have a covenant with you, come and help us. So they do. And, um, and then that's where part of this army, it's very interesting in, in uh, this chapter, let's see if we start reading um, yeah verse 8 says Adonai said to Joshua do not fear them for I have given them into your hand not one of them will stand before you so Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal Adonai through which which may be a hint you know when we get to the passage where he says the sun and the moon to stand still well, maybe there was a full moon, because if they walked from Gilgit all the way to to this area, it's a long hike, you know, so the moon would be kind of handy. Verse 10, Adonai threw them into confusion before Israel, defeated them with a crushing defeat at Gibeon, chased them by the road that goes to Beth Horon, and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. While they were fleeing before Israel down the descent of Beth Horon. Adonai cast down great stones from heaven on them all the way to Azekah, so they died. More of them died from the hailstone than those B'nai Israel killed with the sword. It's interesting because God is not just leading the battle. God is very actively involved in throwing from heaven those, those <laughs> massive uh, Stones, it says, great stones, and then it calls them hailstone, but uh, earlier it's uh, great stone. And then Joshua, verse 12, spoke to Adonai on the day Adonai gave the Amorites over to B'nai Israel and said in the eyes of Israel, Sun, stand still over Gibeon, moon over the Ayalon Valley. So the sun stood still and the moon stopped until the nation took vengeance on its enemies. It is not written in, is it, it is is it not written in the book of Yashar? 
which we don't have, but we know it's mentioned in Samuel also. Thus the sun halted in the midst of the sky and did not hurry to go down for about a full day. There was no day like that before it or after it when Adonai listened to the voice of man, for Adonai fought for Israel. So it's very interesting that God is doing the, the human thing by throwing missiles, and Joshua didn't pray for God to tell the sun. Joshua is actually commanding to the sun, you know, in the hearing of God. Sun, stand still. And so there's been all kinds of interpretations of this, what, you know, um, you know, did it really happen? Is it a... So there are different theories that have uh, come with that. Um, you know, especially that it's a little poem in the middle of all this narrative. So it's poetry. So it's different language. And sometimes when you have poetry inserted in a narrative, uh, people will say, well, maybe it was inserted at some point for some reason or something. And not always sure why. And... Uh, God obeys the orders of man. So God is the one who stops the sun and the moon. He's the one who has control over the, the elements and over creation. And uh, But somehow, man speaks and God kind of obeys and causes it to happen because only he can cause it to happen. So it's almost this reversal of position. The book of Yashar, we don't have. It's mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 1. And so some people interpret this literally. Yes, he spoke and it happened. Some people think that possibly there was a solar eclipse that would have scared the enemy and caused them to retreat. Some people refer to ancient Near Eastern astrological texts that were actually the constellations are being addressed. And you do this uh, in the ancient Near East in order to get favor from uh, the gods or the constellations uh, where the gods are represented also. And then, or some people have said maybe Joshua was praying for the morning due to that it would not be dissipated so people would not see clearly. Well, I think that's a little bit on the stretch line. But anyways, my view. I was thinking about this, you know. Uh, if there was a burning bush that was not consumed, the waters of the Red Sea and the Jordan were parted. People walked on dry ground. Aaron's rod bloomed, produced almonds. Moses' hands turned leprous and then was healed. Manna appeared for six days of the week, not seven, and twice uh, as much on the sixth day. For 40 years, God can make the earth stop rotating as long as he wants. That's my view. Uh, so, I didn't know if I presented this at a, uh, an academic conference, of course, I would have all these, you know, scholars coming, you know, of course, well, it could be this. Well, yeah, God bless you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I wasn't there. I'll find out for a real one. Uh, but there's one more thing I would like for us. Do you have a few minutes left? One more thing I would like for us to look at that really helps us understand how to read uh, 
that okay, David? Thank you. Uh, we'll go quickly. And in Joshua chapter, okay, chapter 10, we have the sun, the moon, yes, miracle. I have no problem with that. At the end of the southern campaign, verse 40, says, so Joshua conquered the entire country, the hill country, the Negev, the lowland, the slopes, with all their kings. He left no survivors, but he put everything that breathed under the band. Or as Karen, just as Adonai, God of Israel, had commanded. Thus Joshua defeated them from Kadesh Barnea to Gaza, all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. Thus Joshua captured all those cities and their land in a single stroke, because Adonai, God of Israel, fought for Israel. Then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp of Gilgal. All, every, entirely, completely. Well, next chapter, we have the Northern Campaign. <coughs> and let's look at the results of the Northern Campaign. <coughs> Excuse me. Starting at verse 10. At that time, Joshua turned back and captured Hatzor and stuck its kings with the sword, because Hatzor had formerly been the head, the head of all those kingdoms. They struck down every single soul in it with the edge of the, soil, uh, of the sword, putting them as heron. There was none left that breathed after he burned Hatzor with fire. Thus Joshua captured all the cities of those kings and all their kings, and he struck them with the edge of the sword, putting them to the band, devoting them to God, just as Moses, his servant of Adonai, had commanded. But as for the cities that stood in, on their mounds, Israel did not burn any of them except Hatzor alone, which Joshua did burn. All the spoil of these cities and the cattle B'nai Israel took as their plunder, but they struck down every person with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, not sparing anyone who breathed. Just as Adonai had commanded Moses, his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that Adonai had commanded Moses. So Joshua captured all this land, the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the lowland, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, its lowland, from the Mount, from the Mount Halak to, to, that ascends to Seir, all the way to Baal Gad in the valley of Lebanon, at the foot of Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them, them down, and put them to death. For a long time, Joshua made war with all those kings. There was not a city that had made peace with Bene Israel except the Hivites who inherited Gibeon, which we have in chapter 9. All the rest they took in battle, for it was Adonai who hardened the hearts to encounter Israel in battle that they might be put to the, the ban or become Haran, that they might receive no mercy in order to destroy them as Adonai had commanded Moses. At that time Joshua went and cut the Anakim from the hill country from Hebron, the Deir, Anad, and from the entire hill country of Judah from the entire hill country of Israel. Joshua made harem on them with their cities. There was none of the Anakim left in the land of Bnei Israel, except some were left in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod. So Joshua captured the whole country according to all that Adonai had spoken Moses. Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to the divisions by their tribes that the land had raised from war. They're all dead. So. <laughs> They're all gone. They're all dead. Well, are they? Now we begin chapter 13 to 19, and I'll pick it up 
kind of here, but let me show you a couple more things. <laughs> okay, they're all dead, but now we have the distribution of land, 13 to 19, but you can include to 21 if you think of Levitical cities and cities of refuge. But now that they're all dead, Uh, let's look at chapter 13. It begins a distribution of land. It talks, it first addresses the land that was given east of the Jordan. Chapter 13, verse 13. Nevertheless, the Israel did not drive out the Geshurites or the Makathites, but Geshur and Makath lived among Israel to this day. Turn the page. And go to chapter 15, where we have Judah. And that's the longest description to the tribe of Judah, which is really a large territory, in, and Simeon received territory within Judah. Look at the last verse of chapter 15. After the description of the land, it says, As for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the children of Judah, could not drive them out. So the Jebusites continue to live among the children of Judah in Israel to this day. I thought they were dead. And then, next chapter, inheritance of Ephraim. Well, look at the last verse, verse 10. It says, but they did not drive out the Canaanites that were living in Gezer. So the Canaanites continued to live in the midst of Ephraim to this day and became forced labor. And on and on it goes. That they could not drive them out. So, how do we read chapter 11? All they destroyed them all, all the kingdom, not a single soul that breathed was remained alive. So we have to understand that a campaign military campaign report is is presented with hyperbolic, exaggerated language. That is part of the language of uh, uh, Report not just in the biblical text, but you have that in the ancient Near East also. So you can't read the text and say, ah, oh, it's all conquest, they killed them all. When you find them, they're still there in every chapter after that. And, and then they use them as forced labor. And then, you know, so, so how do we read the text? We have to understand the genre. If it's military genre, it's going to use military language. Does it mean that it's reality on the ground? Not necessarily, because we read in the next chapter, they're still there. Okay? So, and then in the ancient Near East, you have some text military campaign reports also that list all the cities that are taken by the king of Assyria. And uh, the next king, instead of sending a whole army and conquering more territory, well, takes the, the steely with all the campaign report of the previous king, scratches the old name in, in Akkadian, and writes his name in there. And the glory of winning the war, even if you haven't even gone to war, first of all, much cheaper to just scratch than it is to send an army. And, so, so how do we read the book of Joshua? Do we read literally its conquest, kill them all, genocide, ethnic cleansing? Absolutely not. Okay? It is God. It is a fulfillment of the promise of land. God gives them the land. God, little by little, makes space for them. 
as we saw last week in Deuteronomy, little by little. But it's a God thing. God's doing it. And it's going to happen because God promised. God chose that place and forever. So it's still done. So the question I'll leave with you is, in the land of Israel today, should it be only Jews? <laughs> My next question is that biblical. Okay. I wasn't supposed to be here next week. Uh, you were going to see a video of my face teaching. But uh, my Wednesday night course was canceled. Glory be God. I mean, <laughs> so next week we're going to pick it up with, you know, the, the transfer of land. And, uh, and then the stories that are that are connecting all these transfers of land, and very interesting the way the book of Joshua is written. Yeah, yeah. Now the aliens have always been among them. <laughs> all right, told me all. Michael, would you pray Thank you, Lord, for these lessons that you teach us. We ask, Lord, that you would cause your word to be deep in our hearts, that we would meditate on it. That we would get a greater understanding of what devoted things are. That you would continue to open our eyes to what type of text we're reading. Thank you that you have anointed Dr. Dallaire, and we thank you. And I pray that as we each go our own way, that you'll draw us back here safely on Shabbat. We give you all praise and glory in Yeshua's name. Amen. Amen.